We had been in a series out of Second Chronicles chapter 6 where we've been talking about what prayer looks like together as a church family, how we pray together as a church. And in that, it was bringing up different questions. Week one, it was the question of, is there anyone like our God? And the answer is no. And then week two, the question is, does God want to dwell with us? Does he want to be with us and present with us? And the answer to that question was resoundingly yes. And the fourth answer to that question was, he is with us through his Holy Spirit and his church. And today, the question we were going to ask was, what kind of house that's the language of the text in Isaiah 66, through the prophet, God asked the question, what kind of house will you build for me? And the question we were going to ask this morning is, what kind of house are we going to build? What's it going to look like? And I was full on ready to preach that message and answer the question, what house will we build together? Of course, we understand that God builds the house, but he uses us to do it, and that's the language of the text. And I will preach that sermon someday, but not today. Today, I want to preach a, a different sermon. Not what kind of house will we build, but a different question. And yesterday, Lindsay and I and my dad and Susan were walking. And as we were walking through Levis Commons, we walked by the Holiday Inn. Now, for many of you in this room, that means nothing to you. Um, but there are a few left in this room who, when I say the Holiday Inn in Levis Commons, that means something to you still, because it's where this church was founded five years ago. We met in that Holiday Inn with that breakfast buffet going on and horrible hotel smell for 10 weeks. And sometimes when you look back at those early days, you say, man, those were the good old days. And as we walked by that Holiday Inn, and somebody, I can't remember who it was, remarked, hey, do you remember when we had church there? And I said, no, I try and forget that. They were not the good old days. They were hard. They were really hard. Many of us in that moment were coming out of some pretty hard brokenness. And back then, when we met in that Holiday Inn, we were a small group of people who didn't really even have an identity. We didn't really know what we wanted to be. We, we really didn't know where we were even going to meet outside of the Holiday Inn. We didn't know how we were going to go about doing everything. If we knew anything in those early days, it was simply who we wanted to be. That was it. We just knew who. I was not in a place in those days to talk about what we were going to do and how God was going to move. We just knew who we wanted to be. Now, a few years later, the church was in a slightly better spot, and we had then moved into the movie theater, and a group of about 50 to 60 of us were gathered in that same hotel room, and unprompted, um, at least with an answer, I asked everyone in the room to write down a word that they thought described the church that we had become over the two years we had been in existence. And without prompting on what words to use, 90% of the people in that room wrote down the same word. And the word was family. 
family. And for the next few years, that became the word that defined us. The church was a family. Now today, our church is in a dramatically different place. But I want to use this weekend, Memorial Day, to remember why that word was so important to us. To, in essence, memorialize this word as, uh, uh, as part of who we are. And to do that, we'll then be asking this question, not what kind of house do we want to build, but instead, what kind of family do we want to be in the house that will be built? That question. Because before us today is not a question of what ground can we take as a church? What progress can we keep making No, before us today is who will we be in moments like this? To do that, I want to look at Romans 12. Romans chapter 12 comes after, well, Romans 11, but it comes after Romans 1 through 11, which is the most theologically rich consecutive chapters in the Bible. I think this is fitting for our church because as we talk about going deeper, not wider, deepness comes out of a proper and good doctrine. Romans 12 teaches us that all rightful Christian action and response comes out of proper doctrine and understanding. And in Romans 1 through 11, Paul takes the greatest level of depth known to man to explain who God is, the goodness and the power of God and his plan of salvation and redemption for all people. How he sent his son, Jesus, who was perfect and how then through grace we are saved and it's not ourselves who does it. That we are saved simply by the goodness and the grace of God. And after building on all of this rich theological foundation, Paul then in Romans 12 points us to, and this then is how you ought to live because of who God is, because of this truth of his doctrine. This then is how you live. It's how you live in all moments and in all time. And what's interesting is the phraseology and the statements that Paul is going to use here are not singular in nature. They are plural. And so I want to walk us through this this morning on who it is that we must be. More important than what or how we operate, who we are as a church family. And we see here at least four things that I want to point out. The first is found in Verse 1 of chapter 12, it says, I appeal to you, the you is actually there, a plural word, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. The first thing we are called to be is a sacrificial community. In essence, what Paul is saying here is what is most important is not how uh, you worship on a Sunday. It's not the eloquence of your words. It's not how um, 
powerful you think you are in Christ. What is most important is how you live in relation to one another. That the most important thing is that you and I are living sacrifices one to another. That that is most important. As a sacrificial community, here what Paul is teaching us is how to live this out. That we offer ourselves to each other. That we say, take what is mine, have what is mine. If I don't need it in the moment, it's yours. That we lend our strength and courage and hope and faith to one another when each other needs it. That we raise each other's hands when they are weak. We think of the story of Moses the prophet and Moses was out on the field one day looking out and and, and examining the, the battle that was going on. And when Moses' hands would fall, Israel would lose the battle. But when Moses' hands were lifted up, they would win. And he got so tired. He got so tired that he could no longer, imagine this, he could no longer lift even his arms up. And so what happened is his brother and his sister, which is just supposed to be a picture of the church, got around him and picked his arms up. And the sacrificial community that Paul foresees through the church is a group of people who when one of us gets weak, when one of us gets so tired that we can't even lift our gaze up again or our hands up, that the others come around and hold each other up. What does this community mean? It means we fight along Side each other. It means we protect each other. We stand on guard for each other by what we say or what we don't say, by how we serve one another. To be in this community means that we show grace for each other's faults and weaknesses. We let love cover over a multitude of sin, a multitude of weakness, that the type of community that the church was supposed to be was to see the person in their lowest moment and instead of discarding, picking up and embracing. For anyone who's walked through failure, you'll know that the people who show you grace in that moment are the ones you never forget. The ones you feel bound to. And it is how we react to each other in the lowest moments that often determines the nature of the relationship. This is Paul's first picture. A sacrificial community, one to another a body, he uses the term. And the whole point of him using the term body is that the body cannot move without pain unless it brings the whole body with it at all times. You don't get to separate and say, some will go here and some go there. The body moves as one. 
Verse two, Paul shows us the second thing we are to be in this community. He says, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind that by testing, you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. The second thing he tells us that we're supposed to be is transformed thinkers. That there is a way of thinking that seems right to the world and then there is the right way of thinking. In Christ, our entire mindset is changed. We no longer think as we once thought. We allow then every thought to be transformed through a gospel lens. Every thought. It flips everything. It gives us an unwavering hope. It was Paul who spoke. He says, if our hope exists in this life only, then we are the most to be pitied, but we have a hope that transcends all things, the greatest of all enemies. We have a hope that can never be taken. Peter calls it a living hope. It is an unwavering hope. Paul prays that the Holy Spirit may help us to abound in this hope. And that hope would always be present in the depths of who we are. And that when we see anyone in our community beginning to lose hope, that our role then is to remind all of us and them in particular about the unwavering hope that we have in Christ. In this, we also have a solid faith foundation. We have a foundation that cannot be shaken because our foundation of faith is not built in fiction. It's not built in a dream. It's not built in a fairy tale or a story. Our faith and the foundation of our faith is built on fact. And because our faith is built on fact that Christ Jesus rose from the grave that he is returning to make all things new again, that we rest our entire faith on a fact that is unequivocal, that is historical, that cannot be shaken or changed. He was victorious. And so this then is the foundation that we stand on with an unwavering hope. From this foundation and from this hope then that we can glean, it changes the way we do everything. Peter says it changes the way we mourn. It changes the way we rejoice. It changes the way we view the past, the present, and the future. It becomes our lens for everything. From this place of faith and from this hope that we have in the gospel, this living hope that we have in the gospel, we can even look at the past differently. We can look at our past of, of, of brokenness or failure, and we can see how even an incredible God can redeem that. We can look at our present and remember God's words through the psalmist when he says, though I walk through the valley, he is with me. It changes our present because we know his presence is with us in that present. And he walks with us every step. It changes the way we even look out at the future. 
Because as we look at the future, then we don't look at it in the bleakness of the moment, but in what we know God can do and is. This gospel thinking that Paul and Peter and the others write about is to be the, the thinking and the mind of the believer in all moments. And then as we become transformed thinkers and as we're um, grafted into this sacrificial community, we're told then how to treat each other through two ways. First, Paul writes, for by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. The first thing that we are to do is to humbly serve one another to never think of ourselves as more highly than we ought, that we don't, not one of us has all of the answers, always knows the right way or the best way, that we don't demand that others see it our way, that we are able, so important here, to admit when we are wrong, that we don't hold a position of power or authority over one another. Instead, we as a sacrificial community with a transformed way of thinking, humbly serve each other by the way that God has gifted us to serve. And so if you're the teacher to teach and the preacher to preach and the encourager to encourage her and the server to serve and the giver to give and the on and on. And that what the church is supposed to be is in all moments, sacrificially serving one another by offering what it is that God brought you into the body to be. And so here Paul sets the stage then for what I believe is really what he wanted to get to. He knew that these things had to build upon each other, that first we had to see how we are connected as a body, as one. Then we had to change the way we think and then we had to be willing to humble ourselves to serve one another so that we could what? Verse 9 of Romans 12, so that love could be genuine. So that love could be genuine. What of genuine love? Because clearly Paul is saying here that for love to be genuine, then there must have to be a disingenuous love. There must be a way for love not to be genuine, for us to feel like it is genuine, but it not be now, I believe that everything that comes after this is a description of genuine love, but let's take a moment and just the phrase itself for a second. Genuine love must be at least two things. First, genuine love must come from the heart. Real love, genuine love must come from the place where Jesus said, love your neighbor as yourself because you understand and have taken the time to know that neighbor or to ask yourself the question, in this moment, what would I want or need? We use the word empathy for that. It takes a look and instead of um, um, allowing situations and circumstances to just be out there, genuine love allows those circumstances to come in here for a moment. It was this very idea that caused me to change my sermon last night at nine o'clock. 
It was this, and is this very idea that I believe that the type of church that we want to be and the type of people that we need to be have to be able to walk through these moments. Said another way, I don't want to be a part of a church. I certainly don't want to lead one that can't stop. Can't stop for a week. Identify where we're at. And ask what genuine love looks like in these moments. The second thing that genuine love must be then for it to be genuine is it has to be received by the one to whom the love is being shown. In other words, you can think that you're being loving, but if it's not received, you're not. Mother's Day was a couple weeks ago, so I did what every good person does, right? I bought gifts on behalf of my children, right, for my wife, and gave her the gifts and gave her a Diet Coke and a puzzle and some chocolate, okay? And I thought to myself, self, this is a good gift. You've done well. And she will take an hour and just relax. And I laid the gift out in front of her and she goes, thank you, I don't get it. I said, what don't you get? You like puzzles, chocolate, and Diet Coke. She says, those things are true, but that's Coke, not Diet Coke. And I don't drink Coke. And I said, no, that's Diet Coke. And she said, no, it's Coke. And I said, it is Diet Coke. And she said, it is Coke. It was Coke. And as much as I thought I was being loving in that moment, I actually wasn't because she doesn't drink it. Genuine love, after empathy has worked its way through, acknowledges that love must be received by the one the love is being shown for it to be genuine love. And then Paul helps us to understand what genuine love looks like. And he gives a whole bunch. And remember that this is the same man who wrote 1 Corinthians 13 that reminds us over and over that as a church, we could have the coolest building, we could have the biggest budget, we could have the best band, which we do anyway, but we could have all of these things. But if we have not love, we have nothing that I could preach my heart out. But if it isn't actually rooted in love, it's nothing. That we can give great gifts, and if it's not rooted in love, it's nothing. That we can say phrases and words, and if they're not rooted in love, they mean nothing. That the family that we want to be has to be one that genuinely loves one another. Otherwise, we have nothing here. Nothing. We have a facade. If we can't genuinely love, 
And then Paul goes on to tell us what this genuine love looks like. And he starts with this one that almost sometimes seems sinful to people who don't understand the heart of God. He starts off and he says, abhor, or let me use a more common word, hate what is evil. Hate it. And genuine love actually begins when we look at that which is evil and wrong in the world and say, I hate this. I hate this. There is nothing good about evil. I hate this evil. And love actually starts by acknowledging that there's a moment in Jesus's life when he was faced with an evil and the scripture says that he was moved, but the commentators don't even know what to do with the phrase that is being used because what it was saying is that Jesus was enraged and angry at evil and genuine love is enraged at the right thing evil. And so by no lie that says Christians aren't allowed to be angry. Christians aren't allowed to hate. No, we just focus our anger and our hatred toward the right thing, that which deserves to be hated and that which deserves to drive up anger. And in fact, we don't know what love is if we don't. At the same time, this text begins to show us the great paradox of the gospel. That we can on one hand hate what is evil and what it tells us to do is to hold fast to what is good. To come around and at the same time that we hate what is evil, to hold fast to what is good, namely God and his gospel. That it is good. That God is good, that we hate what is evil and God hates what is evil too. But we hold fast to him because he is good. We are told a little bit later then that Paul tells us this is how we also act as true followers of Christ. We rejoice in hope. We are patient in tribulation and we are constant in prayer. These three things are written together that they all happen at the same time, that in one hand, we hate what is evil. On the other, we are rejoicing somehow in this hope that is alive, that cannot be taken from us. We are anchoring ourselves in the unwavering hope of God in every moment. And as we're doing that, we are patient in the difficult season. Patient for what? Patient for God to move. Patient for his presence to be felt patient to hear his voice. And while we are patient, we rejoice, we worship in the hope that we have in Jesus. And as we're doing that, we are constant in prayer. We are persistent. We are unyielding in our prayer. Our prayer for each other, our prayer in our own heart before our God. And I can say, as I'm sure many of you can, that it is in these moments of rejoicing in hope and being patient in difficulty 
and being constant in prayer that intimacy with the Father is most deeply experienced. That the psalmist was right when he said, I walk with you through the valley. That he was right in saying that in those moments, if we learn how to rejoice somehow in hope, and one of the things I most admire and respect about David, the warrior of all warriors, is that somehow through all that life threw at him, he could sob out of one side and worship out of another. And as you read through the Psalms, and as you read David's heart, you can see he was the one who reminded us that God was closest to him in those moments. And he just remained steady, pursuing God, pursuing God, pursuing God. And we have to as well. Thirdly, as you go a little bit further, as Paul is teaching us about genuine love, he leaves us with these words. Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. There is a time for rejoicing in all of the goodness of God and the things he has poured out. And when it is, we ought to. But he says here that there is another time. There is a time to weep with those who weep. And genuine love knows the difference in the season of the two. 